Hi, this is Valerie Jackson. Welcome to another Best of Between the Lines special tonight. Last week, I shared with some of you that for over 11 years, I've had the privilege of going between the lines with some of the most notable authors and thinkers of our time. I've looked forward to learning something from each and every guest and book, whether it was about an ancient culture or a new string theory. But as much as this has been a labor of love, it has also fed my curiosity and inspired me to explore and investigate this big world and its people even more. And so this year will be the last for Between the Lines. I'll truly miss the exchange with the authors and the wealth of information gleaned from our conversations. But my life has forever been enriched by this experience. And if I ever were to write a memoir, Between the Lines would be a prime period in it. But more so than writing my own memoir, I'd much rather read memoirs and biographies of others. We've highlighted some extraordinary individuals over the years. Unforgettable for his grace and dignity, a recipient of the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, was Sidney Poitier, who talked with me about his memoir, Measure of a Man, a Spiritual Autobiography. Let's take a listen. A a lot of things that you didn't learn on Cat Island and the Bahamas helped you, too. You mentioned the lack of TVs and so, therefore, the lack of negativity and... and, uh, Well, yes, there was no television and, actually, there was no radio. There was no electricity. There was no running water. It was a very simple And we are talking this century. Yes, we are indeed (laughs) talking this century. I was was raised in, in that kind of a society. All my young life was spent in that kind of society, so... uh, you, you learn a, a great deal. What about the culture there, the dreams, the palm readers? For 50 cents, you mentioned in the book, for 50 cents your mother got her future told, which um, actually went to you being born premature and her not wanting to or not knowing whether you'd make it or not. Yeah, I was a premature baby, and I was born in Florida. My father was a tomato farmer, so was my mother. That's how they earned their way. My father would uh, take his produce by Bahamian sailboat, which took many, many, many days to sail from Cat Island to to Miami to to sell his produce. And on one such trip, my mom was along, and she was pregnant, but there was no thought of my being born in the United States because uh, they had expected to be back home. Well, I came more than two months early, you see. Mm. And uh, she, uh, my, my chances of survival were very, very uh, small. And, uh, but for reasons that my mother and I believe uh, best to leave unquestioned, mm-hmm. we, I pulled through okay. And uh, then they went back, and that's where they lived. That's where they lived in that society. But you, t- you told the story in the book that your mother went to a, a palm reader mother, and, the, and the woman told her not to worry about you, that you were going to be all right, that you will travel all over the world and walk with kings. And so she went back home with hope knowing that you would live, Ben. <laughs> you remember that story? <laughs> you in read book? the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's, that's what happened. And I, even having written it in the book, I don't like to, uh, to talk about it very mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned though guardian angels, um, magic, uh, dreams and things throughout the book. Uh, how much of that Cat Island culture is still a part of your life? Do you look at signs as meaning for things? It's a very big part of my life. I don't look at signs as a meaning for things. We all have that tendency because we we have to negotiate the darkness because the darkness that we experience, unfortunately, the culture, all cultures, implies that there are hidden in the darkness are, are difficult things and monsters. You know, children are taught that there are boogeymen in the darkness and stuff like that. So we develop a fear of the darkness. Uh, we, be, we develop a, a sense of security with the light. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I believe that there are forces that are operative in our lives, always operative. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, for instance, uh, serendipity is yes. an absolute force, and it influences much in our lives. We do not control serendipity. You're talking about the spontaneous <clears throat> kind of coincidence of things happening? Yes, the, the spontaneity of, of incidents, uh, the happenings uh, of, of things and events. We don't control that because it turns a particular set of circumstances that turns out to be absolutely marvelous, propitious, or uh, wonderful, may turn on a moment over which you had no control, mm -hmm. none whatsoever. And it forces you, or it encourages you, or it seduces you, depending on your state of mind, to make a turn this way, or to stop at this point, or to look in that direction. And what happens ultimately as a result of that very brief moment, the, the, the smallest part of a second, you see, something occurs. And that leads you to a set of choices mm -hmm. out of which matures a wonderful happening. Kind of like the incident in New York when the guy told you when you tried out for the American uh, Negro, Negro Theater. Theater. Yeah. <laughs> I had gone to, to the American Negro Theater to because I saw something in the newspaper uh, advertising for actors. Well, the newspaper had a, a theatrical page, and on the theatrical page was this uh, article saying actors wanted, and it gave an address. Like dishwashers wanted, or... Uh, dishwashers <laughs> wanted, and porters wanted, and, and elevator operators wanted. And that page for employment was on the opposite page. So there I am reading the newspaper looking for a dishwasher's job, and I glanced over, mind you, in that glance. Had I not glanced over and taken note of a page I never really was aware of, which was a theatrical page, mm -hmm. and this notation that said, actors wanted, I thought, well, I had been, uh, I've done everything. I've done dishwashing and portering and all that stuff. I've never done that. And it also said on the other page, dishwashers wanted, porters wanted, janitors <laughs> wanted. Over here it says, actors wanted. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go and try that, which I did. And I had no business really going to try that because I had, I had no experience in that area. I didn't even know what it was about, but I went. And the gentleman I, uh, who, who received me, uh, gave me a script to read. <laughs> I read it on the spot for him, and he saw that I was this major fake, you know. <laughs> he, he, he was a huge guy, and I was a kind of a little skinny kid, and he spun me around and grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and the back of my trousers, and he marched me to the door. 
And we got to the top. He op- and he's saying as he's going, he said, look, try, stop wasting people's time and just get out of here. Why don't you go out and get yourself a job as a dishwasher or something? Oh, my, not knowing, of course, that not you were course, a dishwasher. Say, no, thank you, but I already have one of those. Right. <laughs> and he also said to me, he said, you know, he said, uh, you can't even uh, speak properly. Well, I had this very thick Caribbean accent, you see. And he opened the door, and, and out I went. So I'm walking down the street, going towards a bus station, not a bus station, a bus stop, where mm-hmm. I would take a bus to the areas where I ordinarily would go to find a dishwasher's job. And I wondered to myself, I wondered to myself, I said, how did he know that I was a dishwasher? I didn't say that I was a dishwasher. Was there something about me? Was he reading into me by my behavior and what he got from me that that was my limit, that would be my destiny, that I had, that I came with no more than what would appear to be the wherewithal of a dishwasher? Mm-hmm. And I said, if, if I don't change that, that will make him prophetic, you see. And I said, I must change that. I must change that. Now, to change it and just change it was not my goal. Mm -hmm. But to change it and to present it to him Mm -hmm. was my goal. To let him see that he was wrong about me. (laughs) Well, that's a tall tale for a little skinny kid, I suppose. But I was was, uh, determined to show him that I, I was better than what he thought mm-hmm. I was. So that's how I got started in the theater. A few other Hollywood guests included Marlo Thomas, Robert Wagner, Alan Alda. Let's take a listen for a few minutes. Well, was it true that you smoked at two and once broke your mother's nose? <laughs> <laughs> they wrote that in the paper. You know what it was? I never smoked. At, I never did smoke ever. <laughs> My father was in a, I think it was in a burlesque theater. They were The, the, the company had come to the Burlesque Theater in Toronto, I think. Mm -hmm. And he realized that he could get the reporter of the local paper to come and write a story about the company (laughs) if he had a crazy, funny story to tell. So they had my picture taken holding a pipe and said that I smoked a a pipe every day. And they made up this, this, they made up a a visit they had to a a supposed uh, expert in uh, child uh, health who said, it wouldn't bother me if I didn't smoke in excess. I smoked in moderation. But it wasn't true. None of it was true. But I remember my father being very proud that he got this article about the company. And, and, and the reporter went on to say that if they made you stop smoking, that might be even oh, more Oh, you're right. The, 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 the mental stress of getting me to stop smoking at two, that, would, that might have hurt me even more. Isn't that amazing that they can make these things up and get away with it? Did you go to military school here in Georgia? I actually went to military school for just a couple of weeks. Oh, when I was okay. seven, okay. and I got polio, and it took me out of school. Oh, oh um, see, so, so there was nothing left for me to, to uh, get like polio once, because uh, I already had it. So, but once they put me in the army, I had to go. All right, right. <laughs> it wasn't like wasn't like military school. So that I did do. Uh, I did so, six months in Georgia in the army. Something you you talked about in your earlier book, and we are going to talk about your latest book. But in the in the earlier book, I think this was in the earlier book, you said that quote, most of the time I lived in a world of imagination. Unquote. Now Einstein says that imagination is even more important than knowledge. So were you bragging or complaining? <laughs> you know, uh, I always I, I I know that quote of Einstein's, 
And I, I think I know what he means, but I do think that he would, if pressed, he would have said, you have to have imagination about what you know. Exactly, you know? exactly. Or you've got to expand what you know through imagination. Right, I mean, right. he, he studied very hard. Um, I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I had more imagination than <laughs> learning. And, um, and no matter how much imagination you have, I don't think you can get into Einstein's field without knowing a little something. Well, the sequel to Never Have Your Dog Stuffed is available in the paperback now, and that is Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself. One of the realizations that you share in this book stems from the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. What did you learn from him? Well, Marcus Aurelius, I, I had not read anything by him. I had heard his name, but I hadn't read anything by him until I was writing the book. Somebody at dinner recommended him to me, and it was a revelation to me because, it, in a way, it solved the book for me because the book was my effort. It's this kind of um, quixotic effort, a kind of pathetic attempt to understand what the meaning of my own life was. Mm-hmm. And when I read this by Marcus Aurelius, it really lit a bulb in my head because he said, all we have is the present moment. And he was really talking about don't waste your time trying to gather glory for after you're when you're dead because mm. you won't you won't be around to notice that glory if there mm. is any. Mm-hmm. This is the time you have right now, and this present moment is truly all you have. Right. And, you, and and what happened to me was I hooked that up with what a neuroscientist had said to me a couple of years earlier, when he said. Our experience of now, our experience of the present moment only lasts about five seconds. Mm. And everything before that is a memory. So everything that everything that we said when we said hello today, is that's already passed. Right. And the only thing that's happening to us now is this look we have in, right. between us. That I'm looking in your face, you're mm-hmm. looking in mine. And when I focus on this this present moment, I see you more clearly. This is what started to happen to me is I, when I put these two ideas together, what Marcus Aurelius said and what, right. the, what the neuroscientist said. And I, I find that I'm able to be here more in, in, a, in a more present way than when I'm thinking, a, am I creating the impression I wanted to right, create? Right. Or will I, will I, what will be the outcome? While you're of this? talking at the same time, yeah. you're already thinking about the future. Something else, right. thinking about the future mm. or thinking about the, the past or do I, Am I, am I saying all the things I want to get said? Right. I'm not worrying about that. I'm just having right, fun. Right. Well, that makes every moment more interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Whenever I can remember to do it. I don't <laughs> I'll do it all the time, really. Yeah. I mean, you have to be I know. realistic I know. about you have this. To be, and you, it has to be a conscious effort in yeah. a way, right? Yeah. Well, and, you, and it's, it's, it, but it really, you know, I, I stopped worrying about the meaning right. of my life. I yeah. thought, what, what, what difference does it make what meaning my life has if I don't notice right. it? Exactly. If you don't notice it, awareness, yeah. that's what being is about. You also have a deep respect and appreciation for science, and you're very active in making science more accessible to the general public, which is good. Recently, I saw you in a serious discussion on computer-human integration, and for 11 years, you've hosted the science program called Scientific American Frontiers. When did this interest in science manifest itself? Were you a little scientist and a little inventor when you were a boy? I was. You really? Yeah, I used to, I, I, when I was, I remember when I was six, I had a uh, a card table on which I mixed household items, 
hoping to find something that would explode. (laughs) Thank God when I was six, I couldn't reach the shelves where the things were kept that could explode. You know, you can make an explosion in the kitchen. But I didn't, uh, thank goodness I couldn't reach them. But uh, I I was an inventor as a kid. I I invented things. I made drawings. Sometimes I made little models of them. And uh, and I, I lost that when I went to high school because it was very common in those days. It really is interesting how uh, our lives are controlled to a great extent by which, what's going on in the culture at the time. At the time. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very popular to believe that if you were interested in the arts, you wouldn't be interested in science and vice versa. Right. And then when, after college, when I was out, I, I went back to what interested me again. And I, and I, was, I, I must say, most of the things I read for pleasure are things about science. I don't read the fiction much. You really enjoy or admire Richard uh, Feynman. Richard Feynman, Feynman, right, yeah. right, right. Why, why is he so impressive to you? You know, he's the closest I think I can come to having a hero um, because I recognize that everybody's human and you can't, uh, right. you can't heroize the whole person <laughs> very rarely. You know, it's, uh, it's certain aspects of them I think that are heroic. And what's heroic to, to me about him is his... Um, his utter honesty and his total curiosity. He, um, I, he, I think, was capable of that present moment thing. One of the turning points in his life was when he saw a kid tossing a plate in the air um, in the cafeteria. And he wondered what the relationship was between the spin and the wobble. Mm-hmm. Now, that seems like such a trivial yes. scene. Right. How would you get anything interesting out of that? He spent months figuring out the relationship and trying to fit it into an equation that would define it. And he did. And and his mentor said, what's the significance of this? He said, it has no significance. It's just it's fun. It just is. It's fun. <laughs> and he, he says, he's dead now, he said in his autobiography that his work on that, on that trivial little thing, the spin and the wobble, led eventually to the work he did that got him the Nobel Prize. So and what, I, what I take from that is nothing is trivial mm-hmm. if you pay close Absolutely. enough attention to it. Absolutely. You, there's a world, there's a universe in every little speck, you know, but, but you've got to look for it. You have to really pay attention to it when it happens. And when somebody talks, no matter how boring they are, or, or you may think no matter how uninformed they are, it turns out that they probably know something about something that you don't know about. Yeah, some little something, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I keep, to my <laughs> delight and dismay, I keep finding that out every day. Well, this is Valerie Jackson, and as we wind down the Between the Lines series after 11 years, we're doing a special one-hour show featuring some of the best of Between the Lines. Many of the interviews mentioned today are available in our archives. You might find them on wabe.org slash between the lines. Believe it or not, another Hollywood biggie was Walt Disney. We always think of him being down in Florida or in California with the Disney World out there, but actually Walt Disney was a big, big Hollywood fan. In his biography, Neil Gabler talks about how Louis B. Mayer of MGM actually rejected Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse concept. Let's listen to the interview for a few moments that I had with Neil Gabler, author of Walt Disney. So Walt Disney brought us everything from animation to city planning, from Mickey Mouse to Disneyland and Epcot. 
Neil, he must have started very young to do so much by the age of 65 when he passed. What, what drove him early on? Well, you're right. You know, he, he was a very young man when he achieved many of the milestones in his life. He was 26 years old when he invented Mickey Mouse. Mm. He was 36 years old when he released Snow White. He was only 53 years old when he opened Disneyland. And as you said, he was only 65 years old when he died. It was the 40th death anniversary on December 15th, 2006. But when you ask what drove him uh, at such a young age, and indeed he started his first animation studio when he was only 20 years old. I thought it was 19. (laughs) And he signed the incorporation papers illegally because he wasn't really old enough to sign incorporation papers for the, the company. But what really drove him, I think, and of course you can't reduce a life to just a few sentences or a simple analysis, but the very first line of my book is Elias Disney was a hard man. Now, Elias Disney was Walt Disney's father, and he was indeed a hard man, a very stern taskmaster. And I think that in many respects, Walt Disney lived his life kind of in opposition to his father's. So having lived a childhood that Walt Disney felt was very difficult, Dickensian, full of all sorts of deprivations, both financial and emotional, that he was going to create a world that was better than the one in which he grew up, create an imaginative universe for himself that he would control. And that's exactly what he did with his animations and with his theme parks. So in some ways, one could say that it was Elias Disney who Mm. set Walt Disney on the chorus by... You know, opposition to Elias Disney. So did he constantly fantasize and create these wonderful things like amusement parks to compensate for what he felt was a lost childhood? I think so. And Walt Disney was a case of arrested development. You know, oh. that's often said about individuals. You know, he's a, he was a case of arrested development. But Walt Disney never really let go of his childhood. Or one could say that he kept on reinventing his childhood and then connecting to our own childhoods by doing so. He made his mark first in animation, and he really instituted several new techniques there. So what, yes, what, what, what were some of those was that set him apart? Well, Walt Disney reinvented animation. When Walt Disney entered animation, it was a very rudimentary form. And the main appeal of animation was its novelty. Oh, my gosh, here are pictures that move. That was it. That's why people even enjoyed animation at all. It was the magic of animation, simply, you know, seeing drawings that Mm -hmm. move. Exactly. Walt Disney understood as a very young man, and I said he started his animation studio when he was 20. He understood as a very young man that this wasn't going to be sufficient for him to succeed. He had to do something more. And what Walt Disney did is he introduced all sorts of concepts into animation that brought it closer to realism. So, for example, he introduced secondary effects, by which animators mean when someone is running, not just the legs and arms move, as in animations prior to Walt Disney's, but you see the hair and the clothing moving, you know, against the wind. These are secondary effects. You get a sense of gravity and mass that these drawings actually have weight to them. But the most important thing he contributed was not just these elements of realism. The most important thing he contributed was the idea that these weren't drawings at all, that these were living, breathing, feeling, thinking creatures. Now, there's an early Pluto cartoon in which Pluto gets trapped in flypaper. It was drawn by the famous animator (laughs) Norm Ferguson. Yeah, it's a famous cartoon. Walt saw this 
animation, and he asked that everyone in the studio look at it. And he said, you see what's going on here as Pluto is trapped in this flypaper and trying to get out of it? Look at what's going on here. Pluto is thinking. You can see the gears Uh. in Pluto's head whirring. That's exactly what Walt was striving for. Right. And then one other thing, too, was the use of music that he added for the first time. It was syncopated, Well, exactly. Walt was also the first person to bring synchronized sound to animation. Now, we all know Steamboat Willie, that first Mickey Mouse cartoon, and it's got sound. But what's important about the sound is that the sound isn't plastered on the animation. It's integral to it. Mickey is whistling. Mickey is is playing instruments. It was conceptualized as a musical cartoon, not just a cartoon with musical accompaniment. And and that's important. Now, later on, he also introduces color to animation. Flowers and Trees, the Silly Symphony, which had color. Now, Walt got no additional money for that. And his brother, Roy, who was the chief financial officer of the company, was somewhat apoplectic. You know, we're going to convert to color, and yet we're not getting any additional money for doing Uh this. And it's costing us a lot of money. But Walt didn't care. Walt wanted to push the realism envelope. And one of the ways of doing that was bringing not only sound but color. And he did it at a loss. Yes. Well, animation to Walt, though, and I, I call him Walt because that's what you call <laughs> him call in I call him the that book. in the book yeah. as well. <laughs> the animation to Walt, though, was, was not just the, the pen and paper. He had a real psychological connection with it, didn't he? Oh, he did. He did. I mean, what is animation after all when you think about it? Animation is taking inanimate objects, in this case drawings, and bringing them to life. Now, there are only two entities I know of who have the power to take the inanimate and to bring them to life. One, of course, is God, and the other is Walt Disney. <laughs> Walt Disney often confused the two, believe me. Uh, but Walt Disney understood, and he would occasionally refer to this, of the godlike power yes. of the animator to create his own world. You know, I talked about earlier how Walt was working in reaction to his childhood deprivations and to the hardness of his father and trying to find his way back to Marceline, Missouri, which was the kind of island in his childhood. Well, animation was a way of asserting control. Yes. It's absolute control. Walt Disney created his own imaginative worlds on screen. Why is it, though, that we didn't see a whole lot of real parents um, in 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 some of his work, I mean, we saw a lot of godmothers and uncles and nephews and substitutes for parents. Yes. Often absent mothers. Yeah. You see that quite right. a bit. You know, you see the absent mother in uh, Snow White. You know, no mother in Pinocchio. And Snow White becomes a symbolic mother for the dwarfs. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Absent mother in uh, Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, Absent mother, finally, in Bambi. And what's going on there, I think, is is suggests the kind of dynamic that Walt had in his own family. Hmm. Uh, Walt had, as I say, a very contentious relationship with his father. He loved his mother, but he, by his own admission, his mother was a, a, a maternal force, clearly, but did not interfere in the relationship between the father and the children. And as I say, the father was was quite cruel, even to the point of abusing physically the children, so that Walt saw his existence, his own existence, and all of these films are more or less autobiographical, Mm. as a battle between Walt and his father 
to attain maturity and responsibility in the world, essentially to replace his father. Mm. And one can read all of their so-called golden animations in these terms, you know, because more or less they're all the same story. I mean, whether it's Snow White or Pinocchio or Dumbo or Bambi, they're all more or less the same story. They're all some, a young girl, a young elephant, a young deer, a small puppet who are trying to fight their way to maturity and find the things that make you a human being, whether it's love, whether it's loyalty, whether it's courage, whatever that is. Did Walt Disney say, though, that he once claimed that his films were not made for children? He did say that. And some people so take who? that to mean that, you know, he, he didn't like children, which is not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, Walt loved his own children and could be very kind. I, I can't tell you how many times in going through the archives, and I read every letter that Walt Disney wrote and every letter that Walt Disney received, he would get a letter from uh, a child, and this was happened on many occasions, saying, Dear Mr. Disney, I'd like to be an animator. Now, here is Walt Disney. You know, one of the most prominent figures in the world. And Walt would take the time personally to answer that letter. Personally. Now, when you say, you know, he didn't make the movies for children, that is correct. He didn't make movies for children, although clearly they have lessons for children and they resonate with children. But Walt always thought, you know, you make films for adults. And if they bring their kids, that's fine. And sometimes he paid a price for that. Speaking of great imaginations... Albert Einstein shared a strong belief in the power of the imagination. As a matter of fact, he believed that imagination was even more important than knowledge. His biography, Einstein by Walter Isaacson, gives us the first full biography of Einstein since all of his papers have become available. Let's listen for a moment to that interview. As a matter of fact, I know that uh, from your book, that when he was 16 years old, he, he imagined what it would be like to ride alongside a light beam. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, that's ultimately what led to his equal MC squared exactly uh, formula. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, I was helping my daughter with her math homework, and she's 16. And she had some equation, some algebra equation, and she had done her homework that was wrong. And I said, well, just look at it. Of course it's wrong. It's got to slope upwards much faster. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, a math equation is really just like a sentence or a language or a brushstroke from the good Lord painting one of the mysteries of the universe. If it says, you know, y equals x squared, it means a line slopes up real fast. And she said, oh, they never teach us to picture things. And Einstein, being smarter than my daughter at age 16, (laughs) or at least in math, he's not picturing algebra things. He's picturing the equations for electromagnetism. In other words, the equations that define a light wave. Yeah. These are Maxwell's equations. And he said, gee, if you look at Maxwell's equations, they're waves, but they always travel at the speed of light. They always travel at a constant speed. And he's saying, I wonder if you could catch up with them. So he did what, what he called thought experiments, where yeah, you visualize visual, things. Visual thought experiments. Yeah, right? it's, mm-hmm. I think what you and I call daydreaming, right. and we're not Einstein. But, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so he said, I wonder what it would be like to catch up with a light beam. And this is what leads this 16-year-old thought experiment, the next 10 years he worries about it. He says, I go away with my hands sweating. I was so anxious about this thought experiment. And I'm thinking, you know, when we were 16, our hands were getting sweaty, <laughs> but not by Maxwell's <laughs> equations. But still, that's why he's Einstein. But it's not that he's just pure 
knowledgeable, it's that he's imaginative. He's, he's creative. He's creative. As a matter of fact, though, you know, there were some rumors that, you know, he failed math in high school and all that. Or, but that, was, that wasn't true, was it? It's a shame because you want it to be true. Yeah, you know? I know. You, you Google Einstein failed math. I think you get about 66,000 websites that say, as everybody knows, Einstein failed math when he was a kid, so maybe there's hope for me or something. <laughs> but no, he was good in math. He could picture the underlying, uh, you know, reality behind a math equation. He wasn't very good in languages, and he was certainly not the best-behaved kid. Mm. In fact, he sort of gets pushed out of one school at one point because he's a little too impertinent, but I'm not recommending that to kids listening. <laughs> and, very, and very, very curious. And, and he talks about his curiosity, and as a matter of fact, one of my other favorite people is Leonardo da Vinci, and he says genius starts with a curious mind. This is exactly like Einstein sitting there looking at the compass needle. Mm-hmm. You and I look at the compass needle and say, hey, cool. But we're not that curious yeah. about what yeah. could be making the needle move. And Einstein had a tenacity with his curiosity. I mean, he thinks about that light beam experiment, light wave experiment, at age 16. It's not until he's 26 years old that he finally solves it with the theory of special relativity. But that's a real tenacity. You know, as a child, though, he he had a little bit of a problem. Uh, He talked slowly, and he had a habit of repeating everything that he had to say. That was really not a disorder, but is it called encolalia? Echolalia. Yeah. Some people say he had Asperger's syndrome, you know, sort of mild autism because he uh, didn't get along that well with people at first. I don't think that's totally true. Some people say he was ADD. I don't think we need to diagnose him medically these days, and certainly it's not good for a biographer to do that. I'm just telling the story. Mm-hmm. But it is important to remember that Einstein was, he, you know, he was no Einstein when he was a kid. He was slow in learning to talk. He, you know, didn't do all that well in language. And that should encourage us that people think differently. Some people have creative intelligences, imaginative intelligence. Some people have very diligent, hardworking mathematical intelligences. We should celebrate the creativity and imagination of all forms of intelligence. I agree. I agree. Let's talk about Einstein and God. How did Einstein describe his relationship with God? Was he what you would call a religious man? Yes, and that surprised people. Um, He was raised in a Jewish family, although somewhat secular. They were not practicing. He becomes very identified with his Jewish heritage when anti-Semitism comes up because, as I said, he's a little bit rebellious. So when anti-Semitism starts to rise, instead of trying to assimilate or go along, he becomes much more conscious of his Jewish heritage. But he also eventually becomes much more conscious of his religious faith, which is a general sense of uh, deism, as uh, Benjamin Franklin would have it, Mm -hmm. which is a belief in a creator and the beauty of what the creator uh, wrought without necessarily knowing uh, all the mysteries about God and not feeling there's a personal God necessarily who's going to intervene in your lives, but just knowing there's a spirit manifesting the laws of the universe. There was a great metaphor in the book about a child in a library, and of course I loved that one. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody, because people keep saying, well, they're surprised to know that he believes in God. And he says, yes, we're like a small child who enters a library, and the child is dimly aware that somebody created those books, and somebody wrote those books, and somebody ordered those books in some particular order. And we spend our lives wondering at that mystery and that sense of cosmic order 
and that there was a creator of the cosmic order is my sense of religion and of religious faith. There was an excellent paragraph in the book that uh, came from his, I'm not sure if it was a speech called What I Believe. Yeah, you know, around 1929, 1930, it turned 50. And I think because you turned mm-hmm. 50, you start reflecting a little bit yeah, you about your beliefs. Yeah, it happened to me when me I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you're not 50 yet, Valerie. Oh, sure. Oh, <laughs> okay. But anyway, uh, and especially because he had kept telling people, yes, I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. But he didn't believe in the type of God you could pray to and say, I hope it doesn't rain for the Braves game next <laughs> week or something. And then God would say, okay, I'll make it a miracle that it doesn't rain. So people said, all right, explain to me really what is the source of your uh, belief. So he wrote something called What I Believe, and uh, it was in the summer of 1930. It said, the most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead, like a snuffed-out candle. To sense that behind anything that can be experienced, there is something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublime nature reaches us only indirectly. This is religiousness. In this sense, and in this sense only, I am a devoutly religious man. Mm. And so it tried to explain that he wasn't preaching about religion. He wasn't trying to indoctrinate people. He felt it was mysterious. Mm-hmm. He felt it was a worthy of awe, and he wasn't sure, but it was that feeling of awe at the beauty manifest in the laws of the universe made by our creator that was his sense of religion. Right. Right. Certainly not as serious as Einstein was the <laughs> interview that I had with the Reverend Al Green. Now, most of us know him as the soul singer from the 60s and the 70s, but he, in fact, has become a reverend. And I had him on the show. We had so much fun. As a matter of fact, we laughed so hard, we could barely do the interview. And Al kept saying, I'm telling you things that I didn't even put in the book. And I would just laugh and say, that's why we call this going between the lines. But it was a great interview. His book is... Take me to the river, and um, it'll show you a whole nother side. Memoirs can be funny and light, like Al Green's, but then there are those that are grim and compelling. I'll never forget the book, The Corpse Walker. This is a translation by Wen Wong of a compilation of oral histories from people at the bottom of the Chinese society, professional mourners, a trafficker in humans, a former red god, and the corpse walker, someone hired to literally carry or walk a corpse from one town to another. Let's listen to a few moments of The Corpse Walker. Well, let's talk about a few of the stories uh, in The Corpse Walker. The title story, The Corpse Walker, I, I wouldn't say it knocked me off my feet, but it certainly made an impact on me. The profession of returning a corpse to its homeland for burial. Tell us, when how does one walk a corpse? When I was growing up, actually, there was a lot of myth, because in the old days, there was a Chinese tradition that uh, if you die, your body has to return to your, your native land. Otherwise, when you reincarnate, you won't be accepted by the village clans. So there is always the Chinese uh, proverb saying that fallen leaves always return to its roots. So 
in the old days, if somebody died in another province or another area, people, if they have some money, they would uh, uh, pay some of these kung fu masters who'd go over to the to faraway places and bring these corpses home. Excuse me, did you say kung fu masters? Yes, a lot of them, because it involves so much stamina, and then people, you have to be really uh, be able to, to carry the bodies and also be able to fend off any unexpected, uh, like, robbers, because the, mm. you're actually walking in a lot of isolated areas. Mm-hmm. So most of the corpse walkers actually uh, are trained in kung fu. The, the, the living person, the corpse walker, actually strap the corpse uh, on his back and then cover the both the corpse and him with a big a robe and looks like this, the corpse was walking. But this story is, is more interesting is about how uh, this old practice was challenged in a new Chinese society that was during the transitional period between when China was going through a nationalist government and into a communist society. And when the communist uh, country would take, when the communists took over China in 1949, one of the things that they, they started was to um, eliminate all they call pseudolistic, uh, superstitious activities. Mm. And this walking the corpse to them is not uh, something that the new society wanted to advocate. So they consider that as part of the superstitious activities, saying, why should the body have to return to the village? If it dies, just get buried. That's one thing. Another thing is, because the the, the corpse actually was the, the wife of a nationalist army officer, because he was considered enemy of the people. So that made it a double crime for these people to go and carry the corpse. So it was a sad the story about how these two brothers who were the Kung Fu masters, they carried the body all the way from uh, faraway places, almost as they were closer to the hometown, and they got discovered by the local communist government. And uh, one of the brothers was trying to escape and uh, end up getting killed. Mm. So that was a very, very uh, touching in a way and a very uh, interesting story. The, another similar story was the professional mourner. What was his role? What were his skills? And what was the function there for him in this society? Uh, in the old days, during a funeral, if a rich person, especially in the rural areas, and there is a tradition that uh, the funerals is also provides a kind of entertainment in the rural areas because they're so isolated. You don't get to be like in the city. You can go to a concert and opera. Normally, a wedding or funeral provides a lot of entertainment. Like even now in some of the rural practice, even in part of the city, people still carry on that. My mom just passed away three years ago. They have to invite an opera troupe to go there perform for 48 hours. An opera troupe? Opera troupe, the local Mm -hmm. uh, uh, traditional opera troupe. So the professional mourner's job basically uh, provides two types of functions. First one is they provide entertainment. Like the professional mourner in this specific piece, he was actually a suona player. It's like a Chinese horn. Uh-huh. Is um, when you play that is actually accentuate the kind of the the tragic atmosphere and make it bring make people sad you know create the 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 ambient for people in the morning mood and this is one thing the other thing is in China is there's the this tradition that uh, all the relatives or especially the sons and daughters of the the deceased you have to cry all the time each time a visitor comes to visit mm-hmm. you have to kneel down and then start to cry to show that you really feel very sad about the, the passing of your, your parents. 
But you know, they have to do this for three days. A lot of people, they are just、uh, they totally numb and they cannot cry so much. So to hire these people who would cry for them, these people will sit in the background when the relatives come to visit, and then their children will bow, and then they will cry, and then the the professional mourners, their job is cry louder, wail so loudly. In this way. People feel that the children are really, really mourning their、right. their, their parents. So, because th- this is kind of becoming a, a a profession for a lot of people, because there are certain rules to these mourners, and、uh, their job is to will, and then also at certain points they help the the relatives so that they don't totally.、Um, Get、uh, emotionally carried away. They keep、and、them. Also, yeah, they might keep them from a, from you know jumping into the, with the body, or they just kind of protect them from themselves, huh? Exactly,、mm-hmm. and also they also provided the the kind of、uh, entertainment, and then they do. Uh, Uh, sometimes they'll play the the Chinese horn. They will sing the local traditional operas, and、uh, the normally for a funeral they will last about、uh, three days.、Mm-hmm. And in some of the rural areas, it lasts ho- for a whole week. Wow! And then you you put the body up there, and then、um, all the relatives draped in the white linen,、mm-hmm. and、uh, people send the, the wreath, p- paper, flowers over, and those crates. It's a huge. Occasion for、uh, in the rural areas,、right. even today now it applies to,、oh, to、really? some of the tradition. Professional mourners, you no longer、uh, go and perform. They just start to invite a lot of monks over to chant because the tradition of the Buddhist tradition of the incarnation. In today's cyberspace, it's hard to keep a secret, but years ago it was much easier. One of the more revealing memoirs was that of Essie May Washington Williams. The young colored woman born in segregated South Carolina, who learned at 16 that she was the daughter of the nation's leading voice for racial segregation, Senator Strom Thurmond. Mrs. Washington Williams' memoir is titled "Dear Senator." Let's take a listen. You mentioned your grandfather, and I'm assuming you're talking about Will Thurmond. Yes, is that correct? Now, there was a quote in the in the book that really kind of struck me because it said, "Quote: The genius of Will Thurmond was to give his beloved farmers someone above them to resent, and someone below them to take it out on." Do you think that strong Thurmond kind of carried that philosophy through? Well, he was such a great believer in everything his father did.、Uh, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both of them, though, thought that the Negro race was inferior. How did Tillman and 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 the Thurmans? How did they explain people like Booker T. Washington or W. E. B. Du Bois? You know these brilliant black men. Well, I think they felt that these、uh, people were probably the exception, and、um, I'm sure they had to have. Some kind of respect for them for their accomplishments, but、um, again, I think that they felt they were exceptional people. Who was it that mentioned that? Oh, maybe it was Tillman who said it was it was the percentage of white blood in them that made them exceptional. Well, you know, some people really believe that if you have、uh, something, say, with black people in you other than your black heritage, they think that you're different. And actually, we know that it's、uh, it's an ind- individual's worth that makes the difference, not the amount of blood. Actually, there's a part in the book where you're discussing 
uh, Truman with um, your father because he believes that Truman was too soft on many issues. And there's a conversation that follows that's pretty interesting. Would you read that? And it starts with you telling him that you want blacks to have jobs. I want black people to have jobs. So do I, Essie May. That's why I love this school, which gets Negroes qualified. I'm working on a lot of educational reforms. Essie May, I'm a school teacher. I believe in education. That's the way to go. We've come a long way. We're going to go a lot further, but it takes time. The railroad coaches, the colored balconies at the movie shows, it's not fair. It's the South, Essie May. The governor spoke with finality. It's the culture here. It's the custom. It's the way we live. I could tell the we didn't include me. You don't go to England and tell them to get rid of the queen and the royalty. That's not fair either, but it's the custom. They got rid of the royalty in Russia, and what do you have? Communism, a police state, is no different from Hitler. And neither are you, I wanted to say. What I did say was, Hitler said the Jews were inferior. You said the Negroes, I often use his term, are inferior. That is completely untrue, Essie May, a terrible falsehood. Where did I say that? I don't remember. It seemed if you don't want them around white people, then that means they're inferior. Not inferior, different different, imagine, to compare me to Hitler. Not that I haven't heard it in that campaign. I heard everything. But to hear it from you, Essie May, you can change the South. You don't want to, sir. Oh, yes, I do. I'm changing it right now by having you here, getting a fine education to get you a fine career. There's nothing in this country you won't be able to do. Essie May, nothing at all. Nothing your husband won't be able to do. We can't get served at the counter at Woolworths. Why should you want to? The food's no good. I bet these restaurants right over here are much better. They serve good, fresh food. I know they do. You can't get a vegetable at Woolworths. I've never seen spinach, green beans at the five and dime. What do you want? A hot dog that will kill you? Yeah, I guess I want the choice, Governor. I think the communists are putting these ideas in colored people's heads, that they are missing something wonderful at Woolworth's luncheonette. You're too intelligent to be taken in by that nonsense, as he may. Much too intelligent. Let's talk about you know, the attitude among blacks at that time. You you mentioned that it was a kind of, um, your generation accepted the status quo. Well, you know, uh, at that time, blacks haven't had the um, background of slavery, were taught uh, to respect the master and, um, and cater to his needs. Uh, so this sort of became a part of... Um, the way that black people felt, even if internally they really didn't, but this is the way they were taught to respond. Mm -hmm. So I think that had a great effect upon 
uh, how uh, they were treated, too. So um, I guess after so many years of this uh, type of uh, uh, training, so to speak, it became a part of you. Right. There was a line in the book that interested me. You said, what Strong Thurman was doing with me was part of a long Edgefield tradition. What tradition are you talking about, and what did you mean by that? Well, blacks worked uh, for the um, the white families. That was very common, and they became very friendly. Not necessarily friendly to the extent that they would have sexual relations necessarily. I know in my case, many people had questioned me about that, and I told them that uh, from what I had learned and heard and observed, uh, that this was really one of those exceptional type of relationships because they worked very closely together. He was into agriculture. She was the cook in the family, and uh, he would help her to uh, know when, which products were uh, a certain way, when it was the products were ripe, and so forth, whereas her sister, who also worked for the family, did the housekeeping. Mm. And later, my uh, son-in-law's uh, father, father-in-law, uh, he had married his daughter, so he also worked for that family. Mm. So there are three people there in my family that worked for them. And I'm sure there were others, but these are the ones that I know about. So uh, this, as I say, was sort of a type, type of training. But in my mother and father's case, I think it was really a mutual relationship. And mm. never uh, had the idea that he had taken advantage of her. Uh, it was one of the things where they just became very close. And she loved him and respected him. And the same, he cared about her. I know that from my experience. How do you believe telling this story now will help when, when you thought that it would hurt you um, to do it, you know, years ago? Well, my children were the ones who convinced me about continuing with that book I had started. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any idea of really of publishing the book when I originally started on it. But as I started to write the story, um, I realized what they had said to me, well, this would be not only of interest to people, they said, but it's, it's a lot of history in there. It is. <laughs> right. And so I felt, well, gee, I've never written a book. I don't know that much. Maybe I need some help with this. And that was the uh, reason for contacting the person uh, that helped with the writing of the book. And this was done uh, through my attorney, Mr. Whedon, and he's here today because he's been with us all along from yes. the very beginning, and he's the one that planned uh, everything that has happened from day one. But as an educator, what lesson is your story telling us? What I would like to see happen that in reading the book, it has, from all indications with people who've completed it, helped them to give them a better understanding of my father, letting him know about the other side of his life, and having people uh, look at individuals on the basis of their merit and uh, not on the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. One of the last quotes in the book that struck me said, quote, and this is from you, I am every bit as white as I am black, and it is my intention to drink the nectar of both goblets. Well, actually... Um, I have never thought of myself as anything but black because that's where I was born into a black family, and I never wanted to change that, never wanted to be anything else. But since I am a person 
of uh, uh, mixed parents. I like to think of the very positive things on both sides and enjoy those things. Senator Thurman never did acknowledge their relationship publicly. These past 11 years have been fascinating. I've talked to everyone from the great French chefs to the diplomats in Washington, D.C., from self-help guru Dr. Phil to Marianne Williamson's spiritual advice, Andrew Wiles' healthy aging tips. We've done it all. We've talked with Ted Koppel and Bob Schiffer and covered everything from string theory to arts and crafts. I'd like to take this moment before I leave, though, to thank my NPR friends who've been so wonderful in accepting to be a guest on the show, people like Krista Tippett, Dave Isay of StoryCorps, Garrison Keeler, David Sedaris, who always kept me laughing, Roy Blunt Jr., who knows everything from General Lee to football, Michelle Norris, Sarah Vowell, this woman is so crazy, but she's got good ideas and she knows where all the bodies are buried. They all gave me great conversation. Well, that's it for this week. Please join me next week for my final Best of Between the Lines show as we close out this 11-year series. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mott Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.